On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we talk with legendary artist Greg Hildebrandt about his four decades plus painting fantasy, adventure, and the iconic movie poster for Star Wars. Speaking of the galaxy far, far away, David Sisko and I talk about the newly announced fourth trilogy, and Lulu French reviews Stranger Things Season 2. Now, straight from the Jundlin Wastes on Tatooine, they're lovely this time of year, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 22 for November 2017. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. If it's important to you to know, this particular episode gets a little sweary from time to time. You know, just in case you were listening to it at a church picnic or with a group of impressionable six-year-olds. It's just a little, but consider yourself warned. Enjoy! When Colin Trevorrow was removed from directorial duty on Star Wars Episode Nine, a lot of fans had their fingers crossed for Ryan Johnson to extend his tour of duty on the wars and roll right into the conclusion of the sequel trilogy upon conclusion of Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, even though we haven't even seen anything from him yet. At that point, Johnson made a statement expressing excitement to see who was going to get the gig, but it was not going to be him. As we all know, J.J. Abrams got episode 9, we all said, okay, that's fine, I guess, and we went back to our normal lives, counting down the days until Last Jedi. Well, we now know that Ryan Johnson wasn't up for that gig because he was likely already very deep in conversation with Lucasfilm about continuing with Star Wars in a different way. And we're going to talk about that. I'm joined, of course, by my co-producer, David Sisko, mm. who returns to the booth triumphantly because we're giant Star Wars nerds and we, uh, we're we going to talk about this either way. So why not put a microphone in front of our face? Yeah, it's better to think about this than most anything else. <laughs> exactly. Right? I don't want to think about the rest of the world. I want to think about this. So so here's the official statement from StarWars.com, just so we're on, on the right page and we can dissect this. All right. Ahem. Johnson will create a brand new Star Wars trilogy, the first of which he is also set to write and direct with longtime collaborator Ram Bergman on board to produce. As writer-director of The Last Jedi, Johnson conceived and realized a powerful film of which Lucasfilm and Disney are immensely proud. In shepherding this new trilogy, which is separate from the episodic Skywalker saga, Johnson will introduce new characters from a corner of the galaxy that Star Wars lore has never before explored. And before we totally dive into that, hidden in this announcement, which first uh, came via Bob Iger on mm. a Disney earnings call, he also like casually drops, oh yeah, and we're producing a, a live-action TV series for Disney's new uh, upcoming uh, streaming service. So like, it was a massive, massive news day for Star Wars. Like, well, Let me ask you this. Was Ryan Johnson having trouble on The Last Jedi. No, by all reports, it's been smooth as silk. Or wasn't it like he wanted to finish it up and there was some kind of, it was, there was no tension whatsoever? Because uh, that was a surprise for me. He gets not one movie, he gets three more. Yeah, he, exactly. <laughs> which, which, which leads me to believe that, uh, is, is this not like, if nothing else, is this not like a massive vote of confidence 
for Ryan yes. Johnson for The Last Jedi. Yes, and they're also probably thinking about his past films and how they kind of reach children, right? Or the next generation coming up. Because they wouldn't be making this for older people because they'll be gone. Yeah, maybe. Although his track record, I mean, it's interesting. As with as with a few of the directors uh, that have been lined up for for the Star Wars movies under the the Disney age, um, they uh, they've come from relative relative obscurity in some cases. They've been smaller independent films and or or films that are known but are almost cult. And I think that's the case with Ryan Johnson. So like with Looper and Brick, I mean, right. we're sort of his big like people. Sci-fi fans know Looper. Uh, or should, but you know, still a lot of people have not seen it necessarily. I'll admit I've never seen Brick. I hear awesome things about it, but yeah, Looper changed my life. Yeah, Looper's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so, so this clearly. Let me ask you this. Yeah, now. go ahead. So, so, who are the writers? Who's going to be on these? Do they have anything uh, worked out? Correct. Not, not yet. All so we know nothing. is we know that the first one of this new trilogy is his, and so that means that probably the idea is that he's going to be the overall architect of whatever the new trilogy is going to be because he's going to lay the groundwork in this one and maybe do, I don't know, plot treatments or something. Totally for, new characters that's, or that's some what obscure they ones say. I have. That's what they say. Introduce new characters from a corner of the galaxy that Star Wars lore has never before explored. So that like blew everyone's minds. Exactly. Because does that mean... Because it, in uh, a week or two ago, Kathleen Kennedy was on uh, the Star Wars show, which is uh, StarWars.com's mm, weekly mm, little mm, sort of news roundup or um, promotional <laughs> uh, device. And um, so she was on saying that uh, Lucasfilm currently is looking forward and plotting the next 10 years of Star Wars and what are we, what are we going to do? And of course, you know, a lot of it was, was very executive soundbite speak. And she said... We absolutely intend to continue the stories of uh, with Ray and and Finn and Poe and BB-8. So, does that statement mean that one, all, none exactly. of them might be involved with this new trilogy, or or do we take that press release to be very literal and say it's new characters, it's something totally, totally new? Well, remember the whole BS when George Lucas first made the movies. He didn't know if there was going to be three trilogies, or was there going to be? Was there not? Remember this? Right. He always, Are they doing the same he always thing? spoke about it. But, yeah. yeah. Was there anything written? Are we doing the same kind of thing right now? Whereas, like, is like maybe they're like, no, we got to keep going. We have no idea what we're doing. We're just going to make it. What do you think? That's a good question. Uh, I I don't know. Uh, and and when they talk about a brand new corner, or, or the, more specifically, when they say that it's separate from the episodic Skywalker saga, which. I think that they, I don't know if that's just someone writing a press release or if they just basically said or confirmed that someone's a Skywalker. Well, there's this. The other thing too is like, is it essentially going to be still about what the Force? Right. This is what right. we're really talking about right mm -hmm. now. Are right. they going to get rid of the 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 energy field that surrounds and binds us? Penetrates right? us, brings the galaxy. Yeah. Correct. Uh, that's a really good question, and and I've had this conversation actually on the on the Geekwatts Facebook page, plug plugity plug, uh, with someone who, uh, yeah, that we were breaking down. How how slavish do you need to be to the elements that are quote unquote are Star Wars, and how far away can you go from the mothership before people are like the you fundamental know thing that's, that's is not... the Force, and which also begs this question. In this current trilogy right here, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and whatever, mm -hmm. is what are we really going to discover by the end? Origins of what? 
end of what beginning mm -hmm. of what does that make sense it does make so sense are we going to do something into the future with these next trilogies or is it far in the past what are we doing here i know that's that's sort of the, the big question so so here let's let's I, I i like both of those and i want to talk about two two of the things that you brought up so if we take a step back and talk about those intrinsic elements to star wars um and you're saying it's the force i would i would certainly agree with that however Rogue One, not so much about the Force. It has a oh, little bit of Force yeah, in it. Yeah, absolutely, Darth Vader. Oh, absolutely. But but that wasn't that wasn't the focus of it. It had to it had to still be the power of the Empire. Correct. Yeah. So, so right. So in that case, like if if we extend the definition of what Star Wars is to uh, Force, Jedi, Sith. Okay, that's that's at the core. But you know, is it enough for a Star Wars movie to be about? hero's journey is it enough to say like this is set way on the outer ridge of the galaxy and the empire is there but really it's not about the galactic conflict is it about rebels is it about smugglers and bounty hunters i mean sometimes it's about the know? storyteller or yeah. the person that was there which was the droids right 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 it's like the, it's there's always got to be a little storyteller right like i was there is it about trade conflicts no Cisco? never it never was it, it was never, never about been. trade con all right just checking yeah, just exactly. checking <laughs> Um, yeah, so right, so so that's sort of an interesting thing to be like, what is it? What if it's about I don't know some rando dude? The or one thing I hope they never do is like you know in Star Trek when the old people meet the new people and some kind oh, of weird no, gross. Like, whales in in the sea. I don't want this is never gonna happen. I don't want old to yeah. I don't need time travel stuff. You understand what I'm saying? Right? But okay, so so let's segue though into. Uh, though, as though I think we're in agreement that we don't ever want to like, oh, somehow Ray met young Anakin, but don't care. Um, but what if this new trilogy, like, took us to if we really jumped somewhere on the timeline and went far future or far past on the Star Wars line? Because I, I think I'm not alone. I don't, I don't know what it is. It's like some Jungian uh, feeling that as soon as they said it's a brand new trilogy in a totally different corner of the galaxy. That a massive part of Star Wars fandom said um, Old Republic or Knights of the Old Republic. Correct. Or, or and, and also there's this kind of element, which is we all kind of know this is a reboot right now. This is their first chance to do something totally different, right? Yeah. And, and being a little more edgy because they got this guy, Ryan Johnson, in, right? Conceivably edgier, sure. And right. Why do they get a reboot if they can't reboot anything else? Well, I don't think it, I don't think it's going to be a reboot. Reboot. I mean, if anything, it's Clone it's just Wars, brand new territory. No. Oh, gross! <laughs> I I will absolutely go on record. Even the stuff that that I don't like as much, because you know we've talked about this. I'm I'm not a prequel hater, but I'm also not blind. Okay, right. so um, so certainly as much as I'm gonna wince every single time I see you know Anakin and Padme having a picnic on the oh, fields of Naboo. Their luggage. I Star never Wars luggage. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want it. Star Wars luggage. Um, where do you check this stuff? Is there a bellman that could help us with? Terrible. We're we're totally incognito, by the way. As as much as there are absolutely, admittedly wonky parts, uh, the romance of Attack of the Clones, Jar Jar, whatever you you pick your thing, Ewoks, like whatever. I I got love for all of them, but everyone's got their thing. You get the idea. I never want to see them remake anything. When people are like, never. When are they going to reboot A New Hope? Like never, never. Like, and where do the Gungans come from? Yeah, and seriously, there, there's absolutely no reason to ever retread anything, any ground that's been covered. And part of that is because over the eras. Star Wars has done a pretty good job, solid B plus, as far as like overall continuity. 
They get. I they, mean, until they dumped all of the expanded universe, but you get the idea. They, I mean, there's continu- continuity, but maybe they're looking for new stories. Maybe they're like, oh, for sure. You know what? We're kind of running out of this thing. Yeah. We've rebooted a bunch of stuff. We've explored all the good stuff. Where are we going to go with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. They're definitely they've got to be looking for new territory, which I think is smart. Uh, whether that is on like an offshoot of the current where we are currently in the timeline, whether it's in the past or something, because to your point, um, you know, I loved, uh, I really liked Force Awakens. I really loved Rogue One. Mm. I don't need to see another planet killer. I don't need exactly. to see Death Star again. Exactly. I have enjoyed every time I've seen them, but if the bad guy is the Death Star or Death Star equivalent, again, like, you know, even I think the diehard fans will be like, all right, all right. Well, there's a thing, too, with our universe and our place in it of, like, larger and larger things trying to kill us. And so, like, <laughs> it's a psychological fear that oh we have. Oh, my God, you're right. right. So how many planets? Maybe the next thing could be, like, 15 planets connected Whoa. killing us, right? Oh, my gosh. Um, do, do you have a, have a preference? Is there in, in your wish list when you heard this? Did you think, I know what I want to see, and it is? No. I have no, I'm, my mind is blank actually because because I just have no idea what they're going to explore right now. We've seen everything that we think we've seen. If that makes any kind of sense, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I mean, again, what? Did, how? Well, the question is this: How much are they going to answer in this trilogy? Yeah, with the origins of the Jedi, sure, right? Or how, the disillusion of the Jedi, or, or wherever whatever they're going it is, with this, yeah. right? R- yeah. Whatever it is, actually. And then, and then the whole point of Star Wars too, and we all can agree with this. You just don't give away too much. Like mm-hmm. no one wants to count your midichlorians ever, <laughs> right? I don't want to know deeper. I need to call my physician. Yeah, I, I need know. to get the midichlorian test I results. I need a bandaid from a midichlorian. They're going to be very low. Yeah, it's terrible. So we don't <laughs> want that. We don't want to go into like more biological fact. It's ridiculous. Yeah, we don't want it. We don't want it explained. Mythology is is the you know the the winner of the day over and over again. That's so what are the, the dates are they thinking about here? Oh right. Okay. So uh they have not announced those dates. So my thought my thought, I like I don't who am I? I don't know. But it seems to me uh here's what would make sense to me. If I was running Lucasfilm right now, we do um we've got Last Jedi uh this year, 2017. 2018 we've got solo. 2019, yeah, we've good. got episode nine. What do you think? Is, yeah. And then I, if it was me, then we let Ray, Poe, Finn, BB-8, uh, we we bench them for uh, a while. For a while, like let let that let that story marinate. I mean, they'll live on in books and comics and and whatever. But like, give those actors a rest because we don't want to burn them out. They're pretty great, so we want to get them back later on. Um, but uh, then you also don't burn out that main thing. And so that maybe they'll continue the, um, what, what would have been episodic movie, standalone, episodic movie, standalone. Maybe we continue that same pattern with whatever the new Ryan Johnson trilogy is going to be. And then when that concludes, then we're back with uh, episode 10, 11, 12, and we see Ray Poe Finn again. And I really, really, really want to know. I really, really want to know. Who knows what right now at Disney? Like, <laughs> me too. What's the third movie? What's the third standalone? Because that's where this stuff is going. Yes, correct. Right. So, so that's where we'll, where we'll Kylo leave you Ren in a way. A kid, yeah. Right? There, there allegedly is another standalone that is supposed to be announced like any time. They said like by the end what of the year. What do you think it's to be? Darth Vader, Obi Wan. I think it's I think it's Obi Wan, because it's it it 
they acknowledged that it was actively being developed. Like it went from years of rumors. Like Ewan McGregor has been asked about it so many times in interviews um, that I think he's actually sick of talking about it. And, and he wants perfect. to do it. He'd be perfect. Yeah, I to, love to the idea. Doing it. Yes, yeah. that he is now aged into exactly where, like right. the age that he would be Obi-Wan living in the desert for, for all this time. Um, yeah, so I, I, th I think it would be that. I absolutely would love to see a Darth Vader standalone, especially following Rogue One. Amazing. I mean, come on. Yeah. And you've got um, uh, Spencer Wilding, friend of the show, uh, who is out there and uh, and is a great dude and really wants to you could do a really dive into it. Dark version, a dark for sure. Dark. I want to see Darth Vader and like the poli the politics of the early days of the Sith Empire. Like he, Palpatine is new in town, Vader is new in town. There is an established um, military setup that is like this? who is this guy in the black outfit? They've done some amazing stories uh, in the Marvel comics with uh, in in the recent years that absolutely play into the politics of the Empire and how Vader fits in and how sometimes just coming in and swinging the biggest uh, lightsaber and choking out people is not the way to get stuff done. Oh, another bill to Capitol Hill? Listen, <laughs> <laughs> listen to this. How about this? Have you ever seen uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in Sliding Doors? A movie that two movies concur at the same time? Uh, what if they did the same thing Russia in the desert years? Darth Vader... Obi-Wan oh. at the same time movie but they never touch each other and they never connect oh that's but crazy they couldn't do it they need they need smarter people stylistically it would be really different I mean that's another question for the what Ryan Johnson stuff yeah, is that what? like we in a, in a franchise like that Rogue One was the first time they ever even used a flashback you know oh. that Last Jedi was the first like even the flashbacks there were like Ray's vision you know, yeah. so like there are lots of things, lots of tropes that happen in films normally that typically don't happen in Star Wars. Are we going to start doing that? I mean, does it matter? Who knows? I mean, we, that we all were communally freaking out that there wasn't even an opening crawl in I've Rogue One. I've never seen a toilet in Star Wars, let <laughs> <laughs> alone tropes. There's no using of the bathroom yeah. in, in Star Wars. So um, uh, briefly before we uh, depart... There's this live-action TV show, by the way. What the what? Yeah, yeah, that's maybe for another discussion. <laughs> I think I think that is. Uh, other than it is happening, so everyone uh, spin your wheels. I'll, t I'll tell you what. If you have an idea, dear listener, of what that TV show um, can be, should be, what you want it to be, then um, you should post that on the uh, Geekawatts Facebook page, and uh, I promise you I will get into a deep discussion with you about whether it should be X-Wing Rogue Squadron. Sick. If it should be um, yeah, the continuing leader. adventures of uh, Wald and Kitster from uh, Phantom Menace, mm. just giving high fives on the side of pod racing courses awkwardly. If we see what's going on with them, there's so much that can be done. Um I want to know what you think it's going to be. Cisco and I want to know, and we will talk about it and uh, share uh, any interesting thoughts that come up in future installments. But until then... December I, 15th is coming closer. I know, dude. I, and you think. Let's go get in line right now. Okay. Okay. Done. Bye. My household is pretty well obsessed with Stranger Things. Oh, yeah, there we go. It's begun. We watched season one multiple times. We had a family Halloween costume as the characters. Joyce, Dr. Brenner, Justin, our two-year-old son was 11. 
complete with bloody nose, ego, pink dress, you know the drill. So naturally, we were counting down the days until we could attack season two like a hungry demogorgon, and now we've done it, we've watched it, and we're going to discuss it in a spectacularly spoilery fashion. First, introductions. I'm not going to do this by myself. No way. Making her triumphant return to the show since we talked about season one of Stranger Things. Have you not been on since season one of Stranger Things? Nope. How have I not shoved this microphone in your face since we talked about season one? It's okay. It's the one I'm most obsessed with. That's true. Ladies and gentlemen, my remarkable wife, Ms. Lulu French. Aww. Thank you. Um, So... Uh, we like pretended to sort of watch it in increments and like, we're just going to watch one tonight, but (laughs) that was torturous Yeah, (laughs) because our older son had to watch it with us and he has school. So we couldn't binge watch multiple episodes at night. So we had to watch one at a time until finally we had a Friday, like we're doing it to the end. Yeah, and then we, then we binged like any good red blooded American with Netflix should. It felt good. It felt good. Real, really good. So, so let's talk about season two. Let's start uh, with some of the writing and performances, um, which as always were wonderful. Ugh, awesome. So good. Um, we were just talking a little bit about the idea of playing into expectations and defying them simultaneously, which is something pretty cool what Stranger Things has always been able to do, I think. Yeah, I mean, the storytelling is excellent. And as the story is going along, you are expecting certain things to happen, like the reunion of Mike and Elle at some point. Um, But with everything, I feel like the Duffer Brothers really take their time with everything. With every scene, with every moment, there's nothing that's rushed. Now, we were even talking about how uh, with the snowball, that it was a really long scene, yeah. and there was so much that happened, and they could have so easily just like wrapped it up like that, like any '80s movie would. But as we discussed, this is not a movie; this is TV, so they really can take their time with the characters and the dialogue, and yeah. So I think that's what we meant by um, just defying. Yeah. The expectations, but right, playing yeah. into them also, and, and I want to yeah. comment about the difference between it being TV and movie also, is that um, the Duffers like have nailed the art form of sequential storytelling on TV, because really, this thing is a movie. I mean, it plays out over like the shortest amount of time, in a way, I mean, at least when we really start to get into it, um, and could easily be a movie, just as season one could have easily have been a movie. Um but they know how to like if if they were if they were DJs or something like hitting the post on a song like <laughs> these guys know how to end on a cliffhanger like they know how to cater to binge watchers that you hit like oh there's something in Justin's trash can oh Ellen <laughs> Eleven just walked in the door like a badass or yes. whatever that like well, we've got to watch more. It's torture to walk away from this. It's not like nothing is ever tied up in a perfect bow. It it satisfyingly concludes. It is so satisfying. I mean, the end of uh, season one and season two were both very satisfying for me as a viewer. And endings are tough, right? I mean, especially with a franchise that you love. I mean, um, it they don't always get it right, you know, with yep. certain franchises. I feel like with Harry Potter, it just felt really good. You know, you could put that final book down, like, all right, oh, I'm satisfied yeah. with this. And Stranger Two, uh, Stranger Things 2 felt the same way, very satisfying. But, of course, they have to have 
a cliffhanger in there as well because the Duffer brothers have talked about how they want this to be able to continue for several years. Um, So it wrapped things up, but still left you with questions at the Mm -hmm. same time. Like Brenner... I mean, we didn't have to, we didn't have to know, I didn't have to know where he was at the end of season two to feel like a satisfied viewer, right? But I'm kind of, uh, I'm tickled that he's still out there. Yes, I am. I'm I'm pleased. I'm like. Brenner's on the run. Yeah. (laughs) Exquisite. Oh, this is something to explore next time. So uh, yeah, I'm grateful for that. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the honest moments. So much of the show is because it's fun. It's ridiculous. Justin running around swearing constantly. <laughs> now I've got to bleep. Oh, or do <laughs> well, I? You know, you don't need to no, bleep we don't. that. No, we don't. It's a brave new world for 1.21 <laughs> gigawatts. We're going to swear. Um, but uh, so sometimes the honesty, though, that comes through, and, and I'm going to kick this one off by uh, bringing up when uh, Mike finally realizes that Eleven has been around the whole time in Hopper's cabin, and the scene between he and Hopper when... Like, he just wants to, he's so, he doesn't know what to do with his emotions. He's so angry. And there's this kid who's beating up, like, the sheriff in town as much as he can. And that Hopper, like, lets him, like, takes mm-hmm. the hits and hugs him. Like, how they hug it out. It's so good. It feels so satisfying in a show that um, sometimes, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but a show that sometimes is going to be about the mythology or... Um, a stylistic way to do the upside down or the you know wallow in the 80s references or something mm-hmm. when it gets when it gets real emotionally oh boy yeah and um that goes to what what we were talking about earlier how they really take your take their time with certain moments um to keep it grounded yeah. you know it's so it stays grounded and the characters stay real because they allow themselves to have these moments that you know are not about the mythology or the plot, but really about, you know, what the characters would go through emotionally, you know, in a real life situation. We had new characters in season two, some new wonderful faces to meet. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, which were which were pretty cool. Um, you know what? Speaking of playing into expectations and defying them, Paul Reiser. I'm starting with Paul Reiser. Because <laughs> even just casting him... Uh, immediately makes you think like, all right, I know, I know what this guy is. Um, And I thought that that was cool and that like, he's the guy who works for the shady organization. And so we're constantly expecting him to like have some heel turn. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, he was the bastard the whole time. Right. Yeah. He turned out he wasn't a bad guy. Yeah. Um, Not totally. Not totally. Which again is very real, right? Shades of gray. It's not black or white. And when you told me about the parallels um, between... Uh, Paul Reiser in Stranger Things 2 and him in Aliens. In Aliens. Aliens. Right. (laughs) It was like, oh, wow. Absolutely. This is such brilliant casting. He's he's the company guy who's like, look, I know you don't want to go back in there, but... Ripley, I think we need you to go in. Right, let's watch the radar together. Exactly. Let's just watch these monitors as the soldiers (laughs) clearly take care of the danger. Oh, crap. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Other new characters. Oh, Bob. Sean Astin. Oh, I love Sean Astin so much. I mean, who doesn't? I've loved him since the 80s. Whoa. I loved him. It's a long time. Yeah. Goonies. I I can vouch. There's Your locker is covered with pictures of Sean Astin. (laughs) It is. 
Um, so, uh, he was great and, uh, now he is gone and, and he was another Ugh. one that we had theories, like he's totally, a, that was, I know I had my moment right. at least like, yeah. I think he's a spy. I think he's working with the, with the bad guys. He wasn't. He's just a good dude who was expendable. Yeah. Well, we wondered after that scene where he tells Will, oh, just tell him to go away. You know, was yeah, there really something angry. insidious going right. on there? Um, but as the Duffer brothers, we've heard them explain that the character was meant to do that, but not necessarily meant to do all that Bob the Brain stuff until they had Sean Astin mm-hmm. on board. And then they're like, oh, let's do more with him. So, uh, yeah, I think that really helped flesh out that character even more. Then he he wasn't just like the boyfriend, the lovable doof, and yeah. the one's like, here's what you should do the next time you come across a, someone nasty in a bad dream. You know, he 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 was flushed out and became a very sympathetic character, and it was so painful when he died. That yeah. was so painful. I, I'm still sad about it. I understand. I know. I love Samwise so Aww. much. And then, oh, Mr. Frodo. <laughs> this time he totally got Walking Dead. Did, did. He did. He, that was straight up that Walking was, Dead. Yeah, it really was. He but is shot. that is that a Night, of, a Night of the Living Dead thing? Because um, I'm not as familiar with that movie as you are. I, well, I'm not even super because famous. Because that is a poster that is oh, Evil Dead. featured. Oh, Yeah, Evil uh. Dead. Um, I don't know. I got it wrong. Can't believe it. Someone take my Stranger Darn Things it. fan card <laughs> away. card has been revoked. Oh, man. Um, so we also had a, had a new kid to join the, the team. Uh, that's Max, Mad yeah. Max. Um, she was cool. Uh, yeah. She was fine. I feel like we need to see some more. Yeah, her. I think we're on the same page. Because this... Having not discussed it, we're both looking at each other like, yeah, she yeah. was like, I've, fine. I've got nothing against yeah, her. exactly. But her, her role in this season was like, it took her the whole season to be like, oh, it's all real. Now I get it. Like, okay, now she's part of the team. Right. Well, she, you um, know, she's part of that love triangle. Yep, she's so part of love triangle. She served a purpose there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I like that you were actually like using your fingers to demonstrate the triangle, <laughs> which was triangle. more like a dodecahedron. <laughs> uh, Max's brother. We're going to talk about Max's brother for a second. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to I'm going to say here's a character and this is I'm going to give it up to the actor. OK, yeah. I hated this character <laughs> for most of the series. He's a douchebag. He sure is. He's an asshole. Whoa. Total dickhead. We're going to lose all of our sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's terrible, um, but seemed like cartoonishly so. Like, come on. I don't believe this. Like, was this pretty over the grounded. top. You're right. Over the he top. He was over the top and a little ridiculous and, you know, and I couldn't deal with it. But then. Wait, wait, wait. Are okay. you going to talk about the scene with his father? Oh, no. Let's do that. Go ahead. Oh, no, yeah. Because then, again, it grounded yeah. it. It grounded it. It gave the motivation. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. for me, that kind of really cemented who this guy was. And, and it actually, I, that, that scene was powerful enough. Uh, and maybe because it was big. It was really big, mm-hmm. that scene with his father, who who does a somewhat stereotypical, like, listen, punk, yeah. and up against the wall, and you call that whore that you're going out on a date with. Mm-hmm. And what did I, what did you say? Yes, sir. I can't hear you. <laughs> yeah. to, I mean, so it's a lot of cliche stuff, but... Yeah, we've seen and, this scene before. Yeah, we've seen this scene before. But at least it's certainly put in perspective like, oh, well, that's why he's ridiculously over the top terrible for this whole season. Where I'm going is 
the moment where this, in, the one moment that redeemed this entire character to me that I'm like, oh, all right, oh, with I'm Mike's on board. mom, with Mike's mom, is with Mike's yes. mom. It was all worth it for that one scene. It was. I was dying. Was. That, that was, was remarkable, uh, <laughs> and so well constructed that like that she's reading a romance novel in a bathtub and just only wearing <laughs> a robe when she opens the door, and that guy that's how we got the role how is that not how we got the role he played that brilliantly oh for real both of them that was that was was electric we were joking at one point about um uh why why mike's mom's name is still in the opening credits because Mm -hmm. she was a bigger character last season so you know once you're in the opening credits guess what you're in the opening credits congratulations Mm -hmm. um but she didn't really we didn't see her that much at all right. in, in season two. But yeah, yeah for that scene, that yeah. scene, which was like, <laughs> oh, oh, my heavens, from her perspective, where meanwhile, he's all like, oh, biting my bottom lip and like, oh, I didn't know that Nancy had a sister. Uh, <laughs> that scene. Yes, she was flustered. That scene was remarkable. Um, let's talk about episode seven okay right that's the one in chicago that is the standalone episode mm-hmm. in chicago this was uh i'm, I'm going to per- make the comparison to netflix's version of arrested development which was we're gonna follow one character for a whole episode <laughs> whereas usually this series is about breaking it up and checking in with everyone um would you have rather have seen all of that in one episode the way they did it or would you have rather seen it spread out as a B plot over multiple episodes? No, I th- I think it was, yeah, it was fine as one episode. I mean, I I guess I haven't really considered seeing it in a different way, mm-hmm. um, but it was it was nice to have a little diversion, uh, from the story. Um, you know, it, it broke it up a bit and uh, it developed, um, L's journey further, yeah. of course. Yeah. And it was stylistically different, which was interesting. I mean, I love being in this 80s Spielbergian world um, in Hawkins, Indiana, but we saw a different version right. of that, you know, 80s. Right. Now we're suddenly apocalyptic. We're streets of Fire yeah, or yeah. some, yeah. Warriors! Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which is walking <laughs> through that alleyway, even in the weird yeah. guys, like, there's a dead guy. I don't even remember what he says, but he's like, what in the, who is this central casting weirdo? <laughs> yeah. That, that came out of nowhere that has nothing to do with anything. And of course, the gang of, of eight, when we meet eight, Kali, I looked it up. The gang of eight, we're not referring to... I'm the, not... the Senate committee. No. <laughs> Thank God this conversation has nothing to do with politics. No, eight as in zero, zero, eight oh, tattooed yes. on someone's wrist. Yes. Um, are we going to see her again? Oh, of course. Yeah, again, are. that's one of those... Got to build the world. ...things that is still out there. It's still out there. All right, so um, I want to wrap this up with the lightning round of 80s references. Uh, once again, okay. this show wallows in them, wallows in them beautifully. I wouldn't have it any other way. Some people might be annoyed by this. Not me, not our household. Oh no. Nope. I think we are, we are down. We so, love it. Uh, so were there, what, what stood out for you? Which ones did you like? Let's rattle them off. Uh, The Exorcist. Absolutely. Interest. Yes. Right. Uh, yes. Poor Will Byers. Um, yeah. totally getting possessed. Although technically... Mm-hmm. Exorcist 1973. Oh! oh burn! Boop, boop, or as Scott <laughs> would say, roasted toasted. <laughs> roasted toasted. He's 13. 
<laughs> you know, what are you going to say? Um, but yes, no, that I think that's legit. Uh, that it certainly is exorcist-esque. Uh, I, once again, lots of close encounters. That's that's a go-to for these guys all the time. If we can have a, a small, cute boy... Looking oh, up at the yeah, clouds. <laughs> looking up at a red sky. Yeah. Yeah, straight up. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, one went out of its way to reference alien and aliens... Oh, specifically, yeah. like in a huge way. It was almost too referential, almost in a way. Like right, now you're just you're just doing <laughs> They're aliens. in the room, man. They're in the room, man. But they didn't say that. They said stay frosty. They that said, was yeah, the quote. Yeah, you caught that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're quoting lines from that. Not to mention the fact that, and people made a big deal about this when they were gearing up for season two and we saw uh, Eleven for the first time with hair and people were making comparisons that oh, it was like right. Sigourney Weaver alien hair. Yeah. Aliens hair. Um. Oh, you you called out this other one, the Indiana Jones reference. Oh, yeah. It was so obvious with the hat. Yeah. I mean, Hopper picked up his hat, and the first time I was like, that's so Indiana Jones. And then the second time it happened, it was even more obvious. Yeah. He had left it behind, and he purposefully turned back and picked it up and put it on his head. I am going to drop... Here, here are my two high-concept ones that okay. I may or may not have already pitched you on when we watched it. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, hear me out. Okay. Here's Here's the reference. I am specifically going with the a fantastic scene where Jonathan and Nancy are on the road with uh, the private investigator slash conspiracy theorist dude, and they're going to spend the night there. Yes, that rom-com moment. The rom-com moment. It mm-hmm. happened one night mm-hmm. in Hawkins, Indiana, <laughs> um, but not in Hawkins, wherever they are. Right. Uh, and there's the, they're going to sleep in two different rooms, although this guy is like, clearly you're in love with each other. Well, good night, you two. Um, so they're just both sitting in respective rooms, just like, oh, I can't sleep. They're flopping over, which in Temple of Doom is the equivalent of, of Indy and Willie Scott, who, like, it seemed like they were going to get together right after dinner with, like, eating the snakes and the eels and all that action. Um... But then they don't because somehow they tick each other off. So they go their separate ways and then they're both like, they're cutting, it's, it's cutting back and forth to them. Like, who does he think he is? My greatest adventure, whatever. <laughs> uh, until finally, you know, they get together. And in that case, then they're fighting thuggy guards. And in the Stranger Things case, they get together and make some smooches. That's right. They get an on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that, that that interplay back and forth. And my other, my other, the last 80s thing that I will reference is a sort of a, an overarching um, similarity in my Star Wars obsessed brain. Okay, this is not fair. You, you have notes and I have no notes. I do have notes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make notes. Okay, go ahead. But go you, have, you have the water. I'm making the case that this was very The Empire Strikes Back overall, okay? And okay. What, I, what I mean by that is that sometimes we got sort of these unusual combinations of characters split up uh, only to reconnect at the end. So I know if anyone has a criticism of season two, it's really just sort of like a preference thing. It's not that anything is wrong with this element, but it's that the gang isn't together until like the final two episodes. But they... They don't. They weren't all together for season one either. I mean, it took them a while to Shut come your together. Dirty mouth. It, it, I Is that remember. true? Yeah. It was well, I like mean, like at the least the boys and and, and eleven. Oh right. Well, that yeah, the they boys were together. 11. But then it took a while for the Nancy and Jonathan to get together with all Joyce right. and Hopper. This and is true. Get the boys and eleven. Everyone get... was working on their separate things, yeah, exactly. only to realize, oh, we're all working. Right. You have a piece of the 
puzzle. You've got some information. You guys have been Yeah, so now we just kind of broke it up in... Well, I guess Nancy and Jonathan were still together, but... Right. Well, this one seemed interesting because it, it was sort of like weird weird combos. So like if Empire Strikes Back is, we're going to send off Han and Leia. They're <gasps> going to be together. We forgot also... to mention Stand By Me. Oh, Stand By Me. Yeah, speaking of weird combos, which would be like Dustin and Steve... Dustin, it's right. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Right? Which was the standby me moment of them walking down the yes. robot oh, tracks. Yes. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yes. That was, yeah, another super standby me. And then especially when you had all the kids um, together, like when Max and Lucas uh, joined that little gang. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I guess my, my thought was like, if Empire Strikes Back is Han, Leia, and 3PO are going to be spending most of the movie together. And then over here, it's going to be Luke and R2 on Dagobah. And then at the end, they're all going to come together. And okay. yeah, that, so then we've got, right, Steve and and uh, and Dustin together for huge swaths of time, which is amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, that little love affair. Uh, so good. Um, wonderful. We can't wait to see more. Um, I suppose that uh, we are uh, got to dive into Netflix's Beyond Stranger Things after show to listen to host Jim Rash and the cast and creators talk about um, the show and break it down for us, yep. I think. you know. So if you'll excuse us, we've got to start binging again. Thanks, Lulu. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. I'm going to make a bold statement and say that everyone, yes, everyone who is a consumer of pop culture has been exposed to the work of illustrator Greg Hildebrandt. I say that partly because he's been working for over 40 years creating a metric ton of art in a variety of genres, but also because he and his twin brother Tim were responsible for creating the world-famous movie one-sheet poster for 1977's Star Wars, the original. You know, the one with Luke Skywalker's lightsaber thrust to the sky, Leia brandishing a pistol just below him, the droids and Darth Vader looking on, that one. The one that you've seen a million times and it's been parodied a million times. That's the one. I've been a fan of Greg's for so long that I couldn't have been more excited to speak with him in his booth, smack dab in the middle of New York Comic Con 2017. Since 1959, Greg Hildebrandt has been painting imagery that if we described it as iconic, we still might be selling it short. The subject matter has ranged from sci-fi to fantasy to superheroes to westerns, pin-up, religious imagery, you name it. But when he and his twin brother Tim created a series of Lord of the Rings calendars in the late 70s, as well as the original movie poster for Star Wars in 1977, the legend of the brothers Hildebrandt was cemented. Greg, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Nice to be here. So, uh, as I said before, of course, that was all kinds of gushing, but for, for people of my generation, we've grown up with some of these things, needless to say, the uh, Lord of the Rings calendar and the Star Wars poster, which is iconic not just to Star Wars fans, but to everyone who appreciates that sort of thing. And um, thanks to a little bit of a preview, I understand that young Frankenstein has a lot to do with the Star Wars poster. Yes, it does, yeah. in a way. Like, Tim and I have been doing a lot of illustrating for about seven years. A, a little bit of everything for golden books, advertising art, down to a toilet training book. And some of that was getting a little monotonous, so we decided, well, let's go after movie posters. It's a little more dramatic or romantic or something. So in those days, you could pick up the yellow pages and uh, look and find an address of somebody's uh, uh, telephone number and call them. And we did that to this ad agency in New Manhattan. And they said, yeah, come on in, show your portfolio. So we went in and we walked into this guy's office and there was a bunch of paintings sitting around 
for young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks's young Frankenstein. And I said, wow, what's this? And he said, are you a Mel Brooks fan? I said, yes, I am. And I'm a fan of the old Universal Monster movies. And so, yes, he was doing a black and white movie, Brooks, and it was going to be with the old, uh, uh, the guy that did the effects and the Tesla machines from from that, those early films. So I, I had to do a painting. And these guys said, well, there's no budget left. These are the, these are the paintings. This is it. And they're all being shipped off in the morning. And so I said, I don't care. We got to do a painting. So Jim, Tim and I, they said, fine. They gave us a bunch of eight by 10 glossies out of the movie. Tim and I worked out the layout, the setup on the way home on the train from New York to New Jersey, where I live and Tim lives. And we, by the time I got to my house, it was all set and we painted the picture and we painted it overnight, brought it back in the next morning. These guys were kind of flabbergasted that we could work so fast. Now, the long story short was they didn't use that painting for the film, but then now in the intervening years, the next year or two, we became famous for illustrating the Lord of the Rings. So we had a kind of a global fandom for Phantom, for fan fantasy. And then in 77, the ad agency called us, the same agency called us back and said, hey, you guys, you gotta help us. We have this movie that we need a poster for because the director isn't satisfied with the poster he has. And I said, what is it? And they said, it's some kind of a science fiction movie. Right. And, and they didn't know what it was. They had not seen it. So I said, fine. So we, we jumped on the train, came into the city. It was the Star Wars job. So we went over the whole thing with them. Tim and I went home, uh, painted it in 36 hours. And like it's 40 years later and the, the picture is still around. I, I kind of jokingly say to everybody, if I knew it was going to last so long, that painting, I would have spent two more hours on it. <laughs> well, that that's pretty fascinating in that Star Wars, and I'm guessing probably plenty of jobs since then, came about largely just because you guys were able to knock this stuff out fast. Well, yeah, part of it is knocking things out fast yeah. and maintain and definitely keeping the deadline, meet, matching a deadline that, that everybody needs because it's all set and ready to go. We all know this. And maintaining a, a, a certain level of quality. Yeah, it has to be there. So that was always the, and not be temperamental. You know, sure. the artist cannot be temperamental. You just do the job, you get, get you do, the, do, do it to the best of your ability. Yeah. And yeah, we got a lot of work. We were constantly busy. Absolutely. You've no doubt influenced so many artists, particularly in sci-fi and fantasy. What artists were inspiring you uh, when you were beginning your career? Which, which was sort of a secondary career, right? Because you began, as you said, in documentary filmmaking. I, well, I began actually in Detroit, Michigan, where I was born and raised at a film company, an industrial film producer, the Jam Handy Organization. Look it up. It's very interesting. It's the biggest industrial film producer in the country, named by the man for himself, Jameson Handy. Now, Mr. Handy started in New York in the Bray Studios in the silent days with the Flesher brothers, Max and Dave Flesher, and he, they were friends. And they went their separate ways. Fleshers went into theatrical with Betty Boop and Popeye in those magnificent Superman shorts of the 40s. And also uh, feature a couple of features, Gulliver and Hoppity Goes to Town. But then Mr. Handy went to Detroit and started uh, training films and industrial films. And he did films, they did films for the Air Force, for the Navy, U.S. SEAL, uh, Campbell Soup, all kinds of people. Well, Tim and I started there in, at, at 18 years old in 1958, we were we we got out of the out of high school, got the army out of the way with six months active duty, a reserve program, then then went to art school for six months because we wanted to be animators at Disney, and we kept writing to Disney, and they said, 
what to what we asked what you needed to apply for the position of an animator, and they said go to a school that focuses on anatomy, perspective, and light drawing, which we found in Detroit. There was there were many art schools in Detroit in the day, and this school was this old line read and write arithmetic school, and we had we took their six month basic course, but then my dad who worked at Chevy. Now, he had started in the stockroom and has worked his way up to the head of office supply for Chevy. Had a lot of contacts all over the city for some, and su with suppliers, and one of them was Jam, the Jam Handy Organization. So he asked us after we graduated our six-month art course if we wanted to go short portfolio at Handy's, and he set up a meeting for us with friends that he had over there at the, in the uh, vice president's office. So Tim and I took our portfolio over there. They, they took us across the street to the animation department. They hired us on the spot for a dollar an hour. So, wow. Well, that was the minimum wage in 1958. Yeah. So we were making a buck an hour. That's like $40 a week. Right. We worked eight-hour days. But, I mean, it was like we should have paid them because I was working with these animators from Max Fleischer's studio. And there was a Disney animator there from the old days. So he worked on Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, Snow White. So we apprenticed for six years at this place learning all aspects of the business you know and then we went on to uh do a documentary film on our own in detroit which then led us to come to new york to make documentary films for six years man so it's like a crazy career that yeah. so that there's like so we spent the next six years doing documentary films where of all things a, a catholic bishop Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, who was huge in the 50s, but he had this obsession on making Americans aware of, of the third world, of global poverty and hunger and injustice. Yeah. So that's what I was hired, and Tim was hired by this bishop to come to New York to make films, documentary films, on that subject, which blew our mind, because I was this very naive, very, uh, very, very naive provincial kid from Detroit. And I'm now in a global mentality of uh, the, the United Nations, CARE, UNICEF, the World Health Organization, making these films about global conditions. I did this for six years. And it was like an amazing experience. Then, after that, we got into children's book illustration. Golden Books, Holtweiner and Winston, Macmillan, Random House, you name it. We did an advertising art. We worked for many ad agencies, storyboards. And then uh, we got famous in for illustrating the rings yeah. in 1976. Okay. That, the, the so that's a whole, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The, the circuitous route to all of these things is always so fascinating to me. And uh, as you say, you've, you've worked with so many, I mean, advertising agencies and publishers yeah. and, and calendars and posters. Is there, did you, ever did you ever find yourself in a project where you thought to yourself, this is so far from our wheelhouse. How in the world did we end up here? I'm guessing the answer is no, simply because it seems like you and you and your brother just embraced all of these different opportunities and ran with them. Yeah, we did. I mean, I mean, like uh, you stay on a path that's straight and narrow, and you keep on trucking. You get there, and you encounter. There's crossroads that you know, kind of like as a graphic image yeah. that you encounter that something happens to be coming, someone happens to be coming down that road and you connect with them and, and you're not looking for it. You're not planning it, it's, but you're staying on a certain path that you're on. And I'd say that path would be a kind of like a dedication or obsession for excellence. Yes. You know, I mean, if you stay on that path, that leads you into all kinds of places and things. And, and uh, uh, 
but yeah, no, I never, I never really, uh, I mean, I, I was always in situations I didn't know, because I mean, that's part of the excitement of jumping into the white space. You don't only want to go on what you already know. Right. You want to gather new, you know, it's easy to, 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 to only uh, work on the information you've gathered already. You kind of like jump over here and find out what that's all about. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. It's because it's uncertain. You don't know if it's going to come off or you're going to make it. But I, I never uh, hesitated, and Tim never hesitated in doing that. Right. And it's led us all the way along that way. I love the term, uh, term jumping into the white space. That, that appeals to me really greatly. I personally come from improv comedy, actually, and yeah, okay. perform it and teach it. And there's also a lot of, a lot of seek out what, where you have no idea where it's going to go, because that, of course, is where the, the real quality product is going right. to come from at the end. If you continue to play it safe, it's boring and it's rote and everyone knows yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a Goethe, the, the German poet. Uh, the, I mean, I carry a quote around with me most of the time. And it's, it's he, I, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's like he, he, he says, you, 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 now he, he was, he was a, a friend of Ludwig Beethoven. And he, he said, if you stay on the path of, 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 if you're committed and stay on that path, whatever that path may be, all kinds of doors will open for you. All kinds of opportunities will arise. Money will come. All kinds of stuff will happen that you could not in any way, form, or manner have ever planned or, or thought about or projected You're on your own. Right. Just stay on that path and you get there. Yeah. Occasionally, you work on large-scale projects such as Marvel Masterpieces card set or the Star Wars Shadows of the Empire project years ago. When the phone rings for projects of that scale, is it good news because it's confirmed you're going to be busy and working and employed for a while? Or do you hear that and think, oh man, I'm going to have to draw this Prince Shizor character 50 times. Do a, <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind doing this. How, how, how does that hit you, projects like that? A little bit of everything. <laughs> I mean, now I work with Jean, my now wife, but she was my business manager since 1979, an agent. And she found out pretty early on that the best way to work with me or any artist that she works with really is to take on the projects that scare the crap out of you. Because that means you're gonna leap to another level. You'll go somewhere that you never went before. And so, yeah, I mean, no, I, I don't have a fear of repeating characters or anything like that because I've always loved sequential art. In animation, I've been an animation sure. nut. So I mean, you I, better it, love the same character. Yeah, you're animation. drawing in, in in the classic days. You're drawing 24 pictures a second. Yeah. And I I always enjoyed the hell out of that, and I still do. I love sequential art. I do it once in a while on a various in various and sundry projects. I'm working on potentially a couple now, and so I don't have a fear of too much. I've never had a fear of work. The more, the better. It's kind of like an obsessive compulsive drive. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we've talked a lot about your brother, Tim, of course, who uh, also tremendously gifted, and we lost him in 2006. Uh, you worked together for so many years. You worked separately for so many years. Tell me about the advantages and the challenges that you face when you work creatively with someone so close to you. I'm sure that's the best of times and sometimes the worst of times. Well, you're right about that. I mean, but again, being twins as we were, it was like, I don't think we ever looked at it as, un we never saw it as unusual because he and I were obsessed with the same things as from the earliest age. And we kind of like worked as a single unit with each other, constantly worked as a single unit. And uh, there never was conflict, there never was competition, we never competed with each other, we both more or less inspired each other or kicked each other's butt 
I mean, when one guy was down because he couldn't achieve something, the other guy would push him, and you know, we were working like that. So it was a fantastic relationship. It was extremely productive. And as far as being productive, I mean, we it, once we got into the business professionally producing art, you could produce twice as much. There's two guys. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. And the branding that comes along with that as well, when you can start saying, the brothers Hildebrand, yes. thank you very much. It's hard to ignore that. So, but before I, I leave you, there's so many wonderful pieces around here, and I'm, I'm drawn uh, by a piece that I keep seeing a lot over the last few years, and that would be a new Captain America punching Hitler in the face, which has been used all over the place. Tell me a little bit about uh, how that came about, which was used on, uh, on a comic book cover as well, right? Yes. Well, I mean, it got to be the 75th anniversary of Captain America, and I knew Joe Simon. I was friends with Joe Simon for about 15 years. And we, I loved Joe. He was fantastic. So, and he died, and uh, then uh, the 75th anniversary came along, and I just wanted to do a sort of a reprise of he and, and, and Jack Kirby's original cover, uh, 1941 cover of, of Cap bursting in and bashing Hitler. So I did my take on it, which was like I was trying to copy the cover. I, I simplified it down just to only those two figures. But I, I just felt I had to do it. I mean, I mean, who's a better figure face to bash than Adolf Hitler? I mean, I was born in 1939, so I can kind of remember the Second World War, and I can remember the 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 the, the Nazi menace and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the monstrosity that Hitler and fascism and Nazism is was something that I'm so violently opposed to that it was a joy to paint a picture of Cap beating the shit out of Hitler. <laughs> well, it's back in fashion again, Greg, so... Yeah, I know it is, and uh, that's why, I mean, I, I was really with that picture in the moment, you know what yes, I mean? Yes. And as well as trying to hope that it relates to now. Yes, absolutely. So, you heard that, people. We're not speaking in code. That's exactly what you think it means. Exactly. Uh, we're speaking, of course, on day four of New York Comic Con, and it's your first time exhibiting at this show. How has it been? What took you so long? Will you do it again? <laughs> what, I, well, I'm enjoying it. Yes, indeed. Absolutely that. I mean, God, it's like uh, uh, it, I used to love amusement parks as a kid. This is amusement park on monstrous steroids. Yes. And it's, it's great. I mean, what I love, the people in the costumes uh, who spend so much time making some of these things, because I was always a costume kid. I made costumes galore as a kid, and I spent six months making a costume for Halloween. You know, I mean, literally. So, I mean, I use them now in my work, in illustration, in all the stuff that I do. So, and not only that, I mean, just to, to meet all the artists and, 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 and people that I've known over the years and to see them here, it's a fantastic opportunity. Why haven't we been here? I, that's a, I don't know. I mean, because we were busy on other stuff and just never got here. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, but I enjoy it. It's, it's incredible. Will I do it again? More than likely. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Everybody tells me, they say, oh, no, I'm never doing that again. And they all show up the next year. Right, right. <laughs> well, it's it's endearing to be around your booth and see the heroes welcome in a way that so many people come up and want to shake your hand and are so excited to to see this happening in, in real life. I mean, as we sit here, to, to my right is a fantastic uh, X-Men painting that's been transpiring over the course of the show, and, and it's hard not to be drawn into it. I alone have, have new questions and, and feel like I'm learning new things about your lighting and the how and why the colors pop based on the reference photography, which 
is amazing. Uh, obviously, you have no intentions of slowing down in your career. I love that. Are there objectives that you'd still like to accomplish? Are there characters or properties that you'd still like to tackle out there? Yeah, I mean, I still want to do some sequential art stories, which are in motion right now, some with major publishers, and also animation. I mean, uh, I've uh, done a couple of paintings for Scott Saba, who's got a great film that he's, will be in distribution soon called Animal Crackers, a fantastic animated film. And we've talked about possibility of working on a film together. So animation is always one of my, you know, primal loves. So that's something that's still out there that I want to do. So that's a kind of a whole direction that I want. I might be side chunking that I may be going back to in a way and yet going forward. Well, if people want to follow that or follow you or see where you have been, where you're going, what's the best way for people to follow your progress? Uh, well, our website is spiderwebart.com, and then, I mean, we're also on Facebook, so uh, just go, I'm, I'm not internet savvy, see, my, my wife handles all that stuff, you gotta get it, I'm pretty much an imbecile when it comes to that stuff, I, I, I am. You've got people, it's okay, you, you can be I, that. You know, well, Gina and I met, like, in 1979, she said, you paint and draw and I'll do everything else, and basically that's the way it has been since then. So she does all the technical stuff. She's a genius at the computer, and, and she hires all the people, and they work in Photoshop and do all that stuff. And, uh, you know, so, but yeah, I, I guess, did I answer the question? You absolutely did. You absolutely did. Well, I'm going to release you back into the wild where the T-Rexes are walking past us and people with blue hair and Harley Quinns and whatnot. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Nice being here. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Many, many thanks to my guest Greg Hildebrandt and the two people who helped that interview happen in the first place, Gene Scarocco at Spiderweb Art and Dave O'Hare at the Garden State Comic Fest. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out. It means way more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? What deserves to be crushed like an Asgardian hammer by the hand of Hela, goddess of death? You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's many social media channels. They are the 1.21 Geekwatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Geekwatts. And on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Geekwatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Geekawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121geekawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section of the iTunes Store. It is so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. And if you're not an iTunes user, you can also find us by searching for 1.21 Geekawatts at soundcloud.com or on Player FM. You know what I'd really appreciate? Whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review over on iTunes, hopefully a good one, which will help more people find the show, which would help make me a happy, happy man. It will take 30 seconds and could make such a difference to the team behind this podcast. Huge gratitude to the Imperator of the Impedance, composer and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the best, Sisko. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. 
I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome with our rad-tastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Every geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad You might meet Luke and Leia's dad Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad It'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks 1.21 freaking gigawatts Take these two over to the garage, will you? I want them cleaned up for dinner. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. Now, come on, get to it. <laughs>